Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 51, and the Third Frontier War is underway in 1799. So this war was set off by the blunt British instrument called Pagenum van der Leeu, as we heard in episode 50. The Zurfeld farmers were now in a defenceless state since their supply of powder and lead had been stopped by the British, who were trying to stymie the Graf René Trekboer rebels. Some Khoi and Bastard were also fighting with the Amatrose, who'd been confronted by Van der Leeu on the Sunday's River. To use a more modern and yet English phrase, everything had gone pear-shaped. By now, 29 settlers had been killed by the Amatrose and the Khoi uprising. The survivors were on the run towards the Khamtuas River, where Jeffreys Bay is today. As for Van der Leeu, he had lost the initiative and was pinned down with 200 of his troops in a camp near the Swartkops River, just north of Port Elizabeth, aka Kabecha. He built a large star-shaped earthwork to repel the Amatrosa attacks, and his men were running short of provisions. The ships in Algoa Bay had left, so he was stranded. Cape Governor-General Dundas was unwilling to commit to a full-blown campaign in these eastern districts. The British were busy fighting the French across the world, and he didn't have any spare troops. But he also didn't want the Zutfeld to be lost. So on the 6th of August 1799, Dundas marched out to the frontier with 500 men and ordered supplies and a prefabricated wooden blockhouse to be shipped to Vandalia. As he left from Cape Town, Dundas wrote of how these incidents reminded him of the unfortunate events at Santo Domingo. That began with something called the Haitian Revolution, which was the largest and most successful slave rebellion in the West Indies. Slaves rose up in 1791, and by 1803 they had succeeded in ending not just slavery, but French control over their colony. They had also chased away the British for good measure. Led by former slave Toussaint Louverture, they rose up against the planters in August 1791, and by 1792 they controlled a third of the island of Haiti. France sent reinforcements to try and quell the uprising, but failed more than 100,000 of the 500,000 blacks and 24,000 of the 40,000 whites were killed in incidents there that shocked the colonial masters. The slaves managed to stave off both the French forces and the British who arrived in 1793 and who withdrew in 1798 after a series of defeats by Le Overture's forces. By 1801, Le Overture expanded the revolution beyond Haiti, conquering the neighboring Spanish colony of Santo Domingo, or what is known as the Dominican Republic today. Then he abolished slavery and declared himself governor-general for life over the entire island of Hispaniola. This didn't end well, and the modern country of Haiti continues to experience disaster after disaster. So back in 1799, Dundas was acutely aware of what could go wrong for a large colonial force approaching a warlike group of Africans who were well-trained in military matters and who knew their environment intimately. As Dundas marched, he picked up commanders in Stellenbosch and Swellendam, then reached the front in September, where he found Van der Leeu puffed up. The latter had had a small success during an attempted cattle raid by the Amatrosa on his encampment, where 50 men of the Hottentot Corps had fought commendably. Van der Leeu was spitting fire and wanted his own form of retribution against the Khoi Khoi and the Amatrosa who had humiliated him. Dundas up to now had been relying on Van der Leeu's intelligence, but upon arriving at the frontier himself, he saw things through a somewhat more jaundiced eye. The problem also, thought Dundas, was the Trekboers. Dundas regarded them as timid beyond all example and terrified of even a single shot from a Hottentot. Once again, the British predilection for summing up people based on what they presumed was honour was a little misplaced. 
General Dundas was circumspect, saying that a large campaign through difficult terrain, which the Amakosa knew like the back of their hands, was impracticable. What he really meant was that it was deadly, and the Amakosa were raring to go, ready to chop up a few more colonials who dared enter the thick bushy ravines of the Eastern Cape. In other words, Dundas turned timid himself, and reported later that it was almost impossible to follow with any likelihood of effect through fastnesses and over a wide and mountainous country, savages and gangs of plunderers who, capable of eluding every pursuit, could not be attacked. He was correct, of course. The British would not have survived a long campaign in the Zutfeld at this time. With the aforementioned events in Santo Domingo and Haiti as forewarnings, he believed any extended war with the Amatkoza would bring disappointment and disgrace and that continued hostilities with the Amatkoza Khoikhoi alliance would expose the whole country to ruin. Dundas was eyeing conciliation as the solution, negotiation with the Amatkoza and Khoi rebels. As with all things involving colonial language, he preferred to call this withdrawal from war, rather than suing for peace. It would save face, you know. The Trekpurs, on the other hand, regarded his actions as a cowardly selling out to a deadly enemy, with at least first subjecting them to some kind of memorable brutality. Ironically, Dundas was in the same position as the VOC commanders for more than a century. He needed to secure the meat from the frontier to supply the ships that passed Cape Town and didn't want the British taxpayer to fork out to fight the Amakosa or the Khoi or both on the other side of the world. Governor Dundas had brought along with him that Landros most Trekpurs hated, Mainier. Remember, Mainier was the Graf René Landros who told the Trekpurs to stop torturing and murdering their Khoi and Bastard workers, much to their annoyance, and who was chased away from the Zufeld by the Boers five years before. Now the unpopular but humane Landros was back and decided that he'd personally head out to negotiate with the Khoi and Amatkosa, and unarmed as well. That took a great deal of courage, whatever the Trekpurs thought of him. Mainier managed to convince some of the Khoi to return to work for the Trekpurs with promises of government protection, but most preferred to remain behind with their war leaders, Sturman, Trompeter and Busak, hiding in the Sunday's river ravines and bush. Tungwa of the Amatkonukwebe was convinced to call of his warriors after he was told they could remain unmolested in the Zutfeld. The Trekpurs were told to go home or lose their land. Then Dundas reappointed Mainier as Landros of Graf Renet and told him to oversee the unsteady peace, a compromise position they all felt unhappy about, including the British, particularly Vandalier. On the other hand, the Trekpurs were seething. Here was the old enemy Mainier back in charge, and they'd lost most of their cattle, and almost 30 had been killed by now, and there was no revenge. Why did these people die? The very fact that the English were willing to negotiate with people the Boers did not regard as socially equal turned them implacably against the British Empire. They had already been reciting stories around their kitchen tables about the dishonorable British, the backstabbers, who sold out the Christian race at the first opportunity. This discourse would become a cacophony, I'm afraid. Mainier was duly installed as resident commissioner at Graf Reinet, and was guarded by a small force of 19 British soldiers of the Hottentot Corps and 80 more Khoi Khoi men, all armed. That also rankled the Boers. Many of the civilian Khoi Khoi of the area now began to stream into the village looking for protection from Mania away from the farms. 
They'd come out of the war with very little except the guardianship of Honoratus Mania to look forward to. Meanwhile, Tungwa of the Amakulnugwebe had got precisely what he'd been wanting over the past ten years, recognition of his right to remain in the Zurfeld, which he considered his own country through inheritance. So, he naturally responded by cooperating with the British colonial authorities and trying to police the region against cattle thieves, whether Khoi or Amakosa. Or he collaborated, to use a loaded 20th century phrase, much beloved by the bourgeois guerrilla chic. A garrison of 300 British troops was set up in Algoa Bay, where a rectangular stone redoubt was built with walls almost three metres high, surrounded by a double ditch and palisade of sharpened stakes. The British had arrived. There was also a prefabricated wooden blockhouse in its midst, having been offloaded in Algoa Bay. This garrison was named Fort Frederick, after the commander-in-chief, His Royal Highness Frederick, Duke of York. The garrison was on the heights above the Barkins River, commanding the anchorage of the bay, and its armament consisted of eight 12-pounder guns. The Barkins River, just by the way, still flows into the harbour close to the Black Impala Restaurant and through the Settlers Park Local Authority Nature Reserve. So on October 16, 1799, Dundas formally announced that the Third Frontier War was over. Both Dundas and Vandalier were deeply dissatisfied men, both with each other and the situation. Vandalier wanted to continue fighting, believing that every advance on our part towards reconciliation will be construed into timidity, and nothing but a sound drubbing will bring these savages to any reason. He turned into a trek boer by the sound of it. There was some doubt about Dundas as well. In a private letter to recent acting Governor McCartney, now back in England, Lady Anne Barnard's husband said that Dundas can determine nothing unless he is in a passion, and then it is a chance if it is not the wrong way. General Francis Dundas in turn believed the principal source of all the problems were the Boers. He wrote that they were a troublesome and disaffected race, the strongest compound of cowardice, cruelty, of treachery and cunning, and of the most of the bad qualities with very, very few good ones of the human mind. The feckless nature of empire-building local officials was well established, and early too. The Boers and blacks would fight it out, and the British, who were too wary to head into the bush, accused the Boers of timidity and cowardice, and yet were timid and cowering at this point. They wanted the Boer farmers to supply meat to their ships, but were restricting ammunition supply to the Boers, which increased their sense of fragility on the felt. The Boers living beyond the Fish River were even more suspicious. These Kunrat, the base types, hanging out with the Nika and making love to the Amakosa Queen. The British point of view was expressed by another Dundas, Henry. Remember him? The Scottish advocate and independent Whig politician and trusted lieutenant of British Prime Minister William Pitt, and the most powerful politician in Scotland in the latter decades of the 18th century. He observed the goings-on in southern Africa in 1799 and remarked that the British policy was to regard the Amakosa as a distant tribe, mutual barter being the only value, and in his words, any attempt to introduce civilization and a strict administration of justice will be slow. So don't interfere in their internal matters. Let the Boers deal with the Amakosa directly was the policy at this point. They'll do your dirty work. Meanwhile, the missionaries had actually arrived at Imnika's great place close to the Kumi and Kaiskama rivers in September 1799. That would be south of Hogsback and east of Fort Beaufort today. 
However, their reception was not a good one. About 100 Rarabi warriors surrounded these eminent men in black upon their arrival. When they asked for Ngrika, all remained silent. Everyone sat in a mute circle for 10 minutes, staring at each other. Then Ngrika approached in what one of the missionaries described later as a majestic and solemn attitude advancing slowly, attended on each side by one of his chief men. The young king was unusual and an intimidating person. He did not smile and was covered in a long robe of leopard skins. He wore a crown of copper and another of beads around his head. His cheeks and lips were painted red. He held an iron nobkeri in his left hand. Twenty feet from the missionaries he halted, and they stepped forward to meet him. He was told by Kunrad the base earlier that they would expect to shake his hand, so he held out his right hand but said nothing. Behind Nika, his counsellors and women grouped about in a half-moon formation. Beyond them were the mass of the people of the great place, staring at these missionaries from the south. Bunder Kemp offered his tobacco box as a gift, which was filled with brass and other buttons. These had taken on the form of a currency between the Amakosa and colonists. Nika took the box and handed it to his attendants, saying nothing. One of the missionaries, Edmunds, said later that he moved not an eyelid, not changed the least feature in his countenance. Does anyone speak Dutch? asked van der Kemp. No one moved. For another fifteen minutes they stared at each other, the Amakosa sizing up these men in black. If you've ever travelled far and wide off the beaten track around the world and come upon people far removed from day-to-day Western life, the introductions can take hours. Patience and stillness prevail even today. Then Kunrad the base appeared and Ngika and his entourage seated themselves and the chief began asking through the base, the translator, what the visit was all about. Van der Kemp explained how he had come to instruct Ngika and his people on matters which would make them happy in this life and after death, and that all Van der Kemp wanted was permission to settle in the country and to have protection. Van der Kemp turned to the base and addressed him directly, saying, I suppose you are Mr. Base. The Lord has sent me to preach the gospel to these people. The base did not respond. The missionaries had arrived at a very bad time. Both the base and then Inrika told him that, with the Amakosa chief emphasizing the fact that, I can myself find no safety nor resting place, being in perpetual danger on account of my enemies, nor can I protect you as I cannot protect myself. They were different peoples, said Inrika, and their lifestyles were different, and they could not be expected to adapt to it. Before leaving the missionaries, Ngrika said they could pitch their tents at his great place and said nothing more and left them. What Van de Kemp did not know was that Trekboer rebel Piet Prinsloer had already passed through the great place and had spread a rumour that the missionaries were actually assassins sent to kill Ngrika. He had also said they would try to poison the chief with wine. Very sneaky, I'm sure you'll agree, considering that the missionaries would want to convert the Amatosa with wine during the Eucharist. Naturally, the Amatosa didn't believe Prince Lu either. He was a notorious liar, but they were cautious nevertheless. Later that day, Debase's new bride, Aka'a Ngrika's mother, sent her own Dutch-speaking servant to interrogate the missionaries. He was an escaped Bengali slave from India and came along with two Amatosa counsellors. They were more aggressive. What were his plans? What was his political connection? Did the English send him? What prompted the plan to stay? Then they left. Van der Kemp was exhausted by day's end, 
and without warning, Lamakosa extended their hospitality, which was the usual manner. Nika sent them a fat cow for their supper, and her sister Hobby brought them baskets of milk. They ate and drank and cheered up. Later that night, Hobby reappeared smiling coyly, joined by a beautiful friend, and both tried to get into the missionaries' beds. They were politely declined. This did not impress the Amatosa at all. It was unnatural to turn down such advances, and to be blunt, it was insulting to the king's sister. If she wanted to have sex with the missionaries, that was her decision, and she was royalty after all. As the days dragged on, Nika did not flatly refuse them permission to remain, nor did he chase them away. He was deciding whether or not to kill them, but was not yet certain about who they represented. Other members of the great place were not as magnanimous. You see, a large number of rebel frontier boers who'd fled the Zufeld Amatosa were living there seeking the shelter of the great Amatosa chief. While the warriors remained impassive, the Trek boers were openly hostile to find a camp. Prince Lu's poisoning story had also caused many of the Amatosa to regard the missionaries with suspicion, even though Prince Lu himself was distrusted. Kunrad the base was a different kettle of fish. He was an artful man, making himself trusted by Nika, shacking up with his mother, allied to the rebel Trekboers. At first, the base also believed these missionaries were British spies, but realized quite quickly as he spent time with them that there were in fact two emissaries from the London Missionary Society, who were also quite obviously naive city bumpkins with not the first clue about how precarious their situation was. The base would pop in for prayer sessions and muttered about God having convinced him they should be friends. He even offered to build Van de Kemp a house near his own on the eastern bank of the Kaiskama River. The missionary was won over, but he had no idea just how ruthlessly conniving the base could be behind his massive frame and lazy, charming smile. Nika began to pop into their tent more regularly too, usually indicating his interest in one of their possessions, which they duly handed over, and discussing a range of issues. He dined with them along with his sister and her friend. The missionaries were still having a great deal of trouble, they wrote in their journals, keeping both women out of their beds at night, and the two remained troublesome by their sports, wrote Edmund. And yet, they grew uneasy by the day, and for Edmunds the strain became too much. Nika had warned them, and debased too, that the Amatkosa way of life was very different to theirs. Hygiene was unheard of. Both the Amatkosa and Boer farms could be unpleasant for the squeamish. There was no sanitation. Dysentery and fevers were common to the Kosa and Boers alike. The Amatkosa diet of fermented milk, unsalted porridge, and partly cooked meat flung onto the coals with the skin on could be revolting to strangers, especially the English. Van Kemp wrote after a month at Edmunds, was this day very ill and feverish with pains in his bowels, not being accustomed to live in the Amatkosa way? Then in late September he wrote that Edmunds was also much troubled in his mind. Van der Kemp, of course, as a former soldier, was much tougher. He walked around without shoes or a hat, his feet toughened like the Amatkosa. The Boers looked at him as a strange person, no doubt. Even they wore large brimmed hats and the customary feltskunen, leather-hide shoes. Van der Kemp was the first white man that Enrique saw in the midday sun without a hat and asked if it was God's will or his own that he did so. It was God's, said Van der Kemp. 
It may have been, but day after day, the missionaries began to appreciate just what bad timing it was for them to have arrived now. The way in which Nika had overthrown his uncle in Tlambi had troubled the Amakosa and placed the entire nation in an unstable state. Because of the murmurings of the people, Nika began to become more and more paranoid. The missionaries were now very aware of their fragile position. Nika's punishment for any crime was to be known as the most cruel of any used by any Amakosa chief before or since. Tying a poor accused wretch over an anthill and watching them being slowly eaten to death was one punishment he delighted in. Nika began to lose his following because of his lack of justice and his violence. Remember I've mentioned how Nika was also accumulating wealth by breaking tradition. When a subject died, a chief received one cow from the herd as death duty. Nika stipulated that if the subject did not have an obvious heir, then he was entitled to the entire herd. Outrage was the result. Furthermore, as a young chief, Nika was merely providing more reasons for his subjects to desert him, and his acquisition of great wealth at the expense of ordinary people led to his power being eroded over time. Sounds rather modern, doesn't it? The curse of human stupidity and greed, I think. At the same time, he was the first Rarabi chief to be caught between his own people and the Cape Colony, the first to represent a large part of the Amatkoza nation and not an outlier group. So, as his power weakened, he began to increase his dependence on the white men he saw as allies. Ntlambe, who Nguika had overthrown, had also allied himself with the VOC and Dutch at times, but done that from a position of strength. Remember how the very sight of the Amatkoza who were under Ntlambe's command, had led to a Trekboer panic. The Amatkosa councillors were beginning to think about chasing the settlers and these new Englishmen back into the sea, or at least west of the Khamtus River, while Nguika was toying with the idea of closer ties. Meanwhile, the base was also stoking the fires, cohabiting with Nguika's mother and poisoning his view of the British at the same time. Nguika never therefore fully figured out what the British were, they appeared to be just men from across the sea. He didn't fully appreciate what lay behind these missionaries, what force had arrived in the Cape, what power existed that he could not see. But many others began to realize what they represented, and they also realized that they had to act immediately to avoid losing their two greatest assets, their freedom and their land. Then the base began to push things too far, and Nika finally had enough. He was to make a momentous decision. And that's for next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. Or you can email me through desmondlatham.com or direct message me on Twitter at deslatham for a chat or comments. Until next, goodbye.